HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Today we're feeling all the feels as we discuss birthing creative projects and hitting send on the manuscript with author Jen Glantz. Plus, we play a new game I'm calling Canapes, Cake, and Cocktails in celebration of her most recent book, Always a Bridesmaid for Hire. We're live in the studio. It's Monday, March 6th, and this is Love Bites Radio. Welcome to Love Bites, coming at you live from Heritage Radio Network. I'm one of your hosts, Jacqueline Raposo. I am your other host, Ben Rosenblatt. I am 34 straight in a relationship, and you can find me as at Ben Rose NYC on all of those weird little social media platforms. And I'm 35 and single, and you can find me as at Words Food Art. Uh, so this is the second show in our series on endings. No, I know. Some of them are happy endings. Like today, we're talking about hitting send on a creative project that's about your life. Like when you've ended the process, and now you get to like birth it out to the world and let other people enjoy it, which can be a relief when you are a self-tortured artist who's like just hammering about their own life by themselves in a room with nothing but a computer for months and months on end, right? So like hitting send is the happy part. That's the happy ending. Are you the close? happy ending. You, I was just going to call you out on saying happy ending earlier, and but I, did I didn't want to get raunchy quite yet. So, so Benjamin, you've written a one-man play and I write essays and I'm working on a project and and then we have our guest for yeah, today. Do you want well, to introduce her? Let me do that. Jen Glantz is the brains behind the business Bridesmaid for Hire, 
the heart behind the blog, the things I learned from, and the main character inside of the Amazon best-selling book, All of My Friends Are Engaged. Her new book, Always a Bridesmaid for Hire, is now on sale from Simon & Schuster. Jen's job has been called the weirdest of all time. (laughs) And she fills in her time as a mentor for New York City women entrepreneurs and as a hired speaker for conferences and workshops around the country. Welcome, Jen. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad you could join us. Yay. Um, So... In the second half of the show today, we're going to talk about your book specifically and your process specifically. But why don't we start off amongst the three of us, since we all have been in the same similar positions before, talking about the beginning of Mm. the process, maybe, and even finding your voice for a project. Because you've got a memoir, and you blog a lot, and Ben, you had your play, and I've got essays, and I'm working on a project. And I don't know about you guys, but like... Especially when you like to read a lot or you go to a lot of theater when you've got all this inspiration around you. I find like figuring out which side of your personality or which voice you want to use can be really hard. Like that's the, and that's the first step. It's like you can't figure out how to write the whole project if you don't know which perspective you want to start with. So how do you guys do that? How do you figure out like which your you know what your narrative is? Where's this where's the starting point? For me, it's kind of simple. Um, I don't think too much about it. I really just open up the Word document and just start to write. I think when I try to tell myself, okay, I'm going to write this in a certain tone or in a certain mood or flair, my mind just wants to explode with all of these rules. So I've really tried to keep my process simple by promising myself, open the Word document, type your brains out, nobody's going to read it, and after 25 minutes, reread what you wrote, keep what you like, that's your tone. Very interesting. I wish I had started with that because I think I did the brain explosion thing recently and now it's like wading through. Well, what about you, Benjamin? Well, I don't think my process is entirely dissimilar at the beginning. Um, I like to put down on the page just like whatever I'm like the most excited and inspired to write. I'll just kind of like throw that down right away and then I will kind of try to figure out like I, I, I didn't start out on my play even knowing what my play was going to be about really. Really? So I kind of... What did you start with then? Um, I started... Well, I did some interviews um, and so I did a ton of interviews. Um, my, I knew my play was going to be about obsessive compulsive disorder but I didn't really know what I wanted to say. Um, and so I did a bunch of interviews and I kind of picked what I thought were like the most exciting bits of information from the interviews and I like threw that into a word document and then I knew it was going to be also partly autobiographical and so I kind of threw some scenes that I thought would be exciting to write about my life down and then I kind of saw all right like what do I need to make this be a story that's palatable and so I kind of started throwing it in order and then when I found like I had a hole I'd just kind of be like oh need section about so and so here Mm. and then when I kind of through the balls to write that section, I would go back to it. Do you think about your audience? Because with this one project I'm working on now, where I'm definitely still figuring out the tone of it, I have a friend who, in a recent writer's group, 
we were all writing for a friend of ours who had recently lost his father. And so unbeknownst to him, we decided to write stories for him about people who accidentally poop themselves because that makes him laugh more than anything in the whole world. So it. like we surprised him with stories of accidental pooping and he had no idea we were doing this. And so one of us, my, my friend Erica, wrote a story um, about an artist doing like one of those MoMA, like I'm going to sleep in a box for 48 hours. It was Tilda Swinton sleeping in a box yeah. in the MoMA and Tilda Swinton accidentally shits herself. And it was one of the funniest things I've ever read and one of Erica's best pieces of writing. And she's like, well, I knew exactly who I was writing it for and whose voice I was writing it in. And it was this beautiful moment of clarity. And so I was like, ah, oh, like maybe, you know, a lot of people pick their audience or pick the one person they're writing for. Does that come into play for you? I I have a thought about that. I mean, I always think of myself as the audience. I like Mm. to write something that I think is going to entertain me and will be exciting for me because I can't please everyone and I don't know who's going to be my audience. I just know that if it's really fun and exciting for me, there's probably someone else out there who it also might be exciting for. What about you, Jacqueline? Do you, are you writing about that idea too? Because right now, I feel like I'm having like personality disorder with figuring out which part of me is writing this book and which part of me would even read this thing that I'm writing. And so I think that's part of it is like, like I'm playing around with it. I'm still figuring it out because like there's so many moving parts to this project that I'm working on and I haven't, I haven't found the one that's right yet. So that's why, that's why selfishly I'm like, this is what we're talking about on the show because you know, it's like, do I, do I pick a friend and try to write in that voice for that friend? Do I pick a part of my personality as a person who likes to read different types of books and essays and things like that? I mean, this speaks to something else I kind of wanted to bring up, yeah. which is like, right, it's, it's exciting that the three of us are here kind of talking about this because we all do this and oh. have our own experiences. Um, and yet like sometimes having advice or writing for a specific audience or taking someone else's you know, advice isn't always the most helpful right. thing. Do you guys have anyone who is like a really great advice giver or what's your approach to taking and utilizing advice? I personally don't like advice from anybody. Uh, <laughs> I like to pretend I know it all, which is a good thing because then you make your own mistakes and you make them yourself and you mm. can't blame anybody else. When I was writing my, my most recent book, I found that I couldn't get started. I would start and self-talk my, myself out of doing anything. So I have a business mentor who is the total opposite of me. He's 86 years old. He's uh, a man. And he's never written a book in his life. And I went to him and said, Ray, I can't write this book. I'm not good enough. It's not making sense. You know, chapter one isn't flowing to chapter two. And he said, enough. He said, stop writing in order. Write in whatever order you want. If today you want to write chapter seven, write chapter seven. Tomorrow you want to write the ending of chapter nine, just write that. And before you know it, you have a million little pieces that you can tie together. But when you try to write in this constraint, this order, with all these voices in your head, you're going to sit there and do nothing. And shockingly, he's the only person I listen to. And I think that's because he's so different than me that I can't look at him and say, you know, why are you saying that to me? It's almost like you're the, my outside perspective that I just want to pull in and hug and listen to everything you, you tell me. See, I'm the opposite. I like everybody's opinion. Hmm. Do you find that helpful to you or yes. do you find it paralyzes really? you? I felt, well, it both. It paralyzes me, but then I find it helpful. Like I like criticism. I like conversation. I will listen to, and I, I mean, not everybody's, I should say. Like, I'm very lucky that I have this writer's group of five writers who are friends, but we we really alchemically work well together, that we all have different styles and voices, and, you know, we all do different things, like we're completely different types of people. 
we can trust each other. Yeah. And so when I'm really stuck and don't have somebody else, like I don't, a lot of my editors don't really edit. There's not a lot of back and forth. Like you submit something and they either change it and it goes online and you're like, wow, they didn't change anything. And I wish they had given me some feedback because I really needed help or they edit to make it match their voice. And you're like, damn it, that's six of one, half a dozen of another on that sentence. And I liked mine better. Um, so with my writers group, with when I'm having big problems with a big project, they know me and they know, and a lot of time it's just them telling me to stick to my guns and that, you know, the greatest thing can be like, there's a lot of personality in this. You don't need to worry about it. I can tell what you don't like writing in this. So stop writing about the things you don't like writing because the things that you do like writing are flying. Yep. And then we hit a wall and I can tell that you don't like writing this part and it's not as good. So, but there's a lot of, I'm very, I like the collaboration of that, but that's, you know, that's cause I, I don't know. I think I get a little. I know I'm, I'm like I'm a way overthinker about a lot of things. I like sort of pushing possibilities aside and honing down to one thing. That's part of the process that I that I find fun. I'm not a sit down and write. I can't sit down and just write a bunch out. I revi- I like always have to start from the beginning and revise, which is why it takes me a billion years to write anything. I like that though. I revise too. You know, sometimes I'll put something on a page and then go back to it 30 minutes later and start from scratch. So I think it's just have to, having to give in to how your mind wants to think that day. Yeah. Have Benjamin. either of you guys had, I'm sure you have, had scenarios where an editor or an agent or someone has been like, you know what, this really isn't working and we can't use it until it is. And how did you cope with that situation? Well, I mean, I've had book proposals that don't sell and just move on. I move on. And I either will come back to it when the market is different or when the project can change or I've always got more projects that I want to do. Yeah, I mean, when I was writing this book right now, I found it that a lot of my jokes my editor took out. I was like, what? You know, that's so funny to me. I guess you're not, you know, you don't think it's funny or maybe people won't think it's funny. So I really had to take a step back uh, and analyze, you know, what I should agree to keep in and what I should agree to take out. And there were times when I said, you know what? I love this sentence. If this sentence isn't in the book, I won't feel proud of the book. And Mm -hmm. I put it back in. But I would say, you know, 85% of the time I did listen to my editor and I did trust her. But there were a couple times here and there where I just knew I wanted those sentences in. And even now that the book is out, some of those sentences that I pulled back in are what people are saying are their most favorite parts of the book, which is just so interesting to see. It's so tricky. Like, I I feel stuck in a little bit of a situation where my my favorite advice giver and mentor is also the producer of my play. Mm. And... You know, she has things in it that, like, she doesn't like and, like, just, like, aren't working for her. And yet, like, in the the previous workshop that most recently happened, um, some of those things are, like, things I got the best feedback from from people who came and saw it. And so it's like, ah, man, I really want to leave that in. I don't know if I can and still, like, move forward with the project. How do I, like, navigate those waters? And that's been, like, a really tricky sort of, like really daunting reality for me to face. Yeah, and I think it's hard when you're in it, when you're, you know, when you're in that process. So, after the after the break, we're going to talk about when this part of the process is is nearing completion. But um so listeners, Jen and Ben have no idea what I'm springing upon them. But it's a game. So I'm sucking on a throat lozenge right now and I've not left my apartment since I was here last Monday because I've been sick. And in my delightful Mucinex antibiotic NyQuil haze, I came up with a game that I'm calling Canapes Cake and Cocktails. And I basically was just going all over the internet 
reading things about wedding food because we're on a food radio station. And so we should talk about food sometimes. And so Jen's book is about being a bridesmaid forever. And so she goes to a lot of weddings. And so this is going to be a little true or false for Jen versus Ben. Canapes. Bring it on. Cocktails. Jen, I'm ready. I got your number. And Ooh. cookies. So basically, not cocktails and cookies, cocktails and cake. So they each have one question. It's true or false. I'm going to read a sentence. You tell me if it's true or false. And then I will tell you where it came from. And listeners, if you are curious as to the sources from these right now, or in five minutes, actually, on lovebitesradio.com, all of these questions and answers and links to sources are going up. So if you're planning your own wedding and want to know why something I'm saying is true or false, that you can utilize it in your wedding, it's up there in five minutes, lovebitesradio.com. So, Jen. Yes. Question number one, canapes. Don't let the groom sway you. Mini takes on full-sized favorites like sliders or bites of spaghetti and meatballs are so over in 2017. True or false? Big false. They are trendier than ever right now. People are using them for midnight snacks. She is correct. One Yay! point for Jen. It's false. According to Social Pantry UK, pre-portioned minis mimic the street food crave that's still going strong, and sliders and shooters are super popular right now. Okay, Benjamin. Pressure's on. Canapes. Kicking up the wine and cheese pairing traditions of yore, trends now show cocktail hours elevating the guest experience with, say, tempura avocado tacos and mini margaritas. True or false? I'm going to say true. You are correct. Essentialchefs.com claims this elevates the guest experience while keeping folks active and engaged. All right. Cake, Jen. Yes. If you were to order a cheesecake as your wedding cake, you would be considered a fool because cheesecake is not a cake. True or false? Oh, goodness. Mm. I consider cheesecake a cake. I don't know if that's the real answer, but I think it's, I think it's true. True. Well, wait, 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 wait. You said cheesecake is a cake? I think it is a cake. Oh, no. Sorry, that's false. Oh, my man. Premature. Sorry. It's a fake out right Well, no, because my statement was true. I said uh, cheesecake is not a cake. So uh, sorry. No. I read that my statement is true. According to a story out by Eater this week called Sorry, Cheesecake is Not a Cake, cheesecake is a filling either topped onto or surrounded three sides by a crust. Eater's executive editor Helen Rosner and copy editor Emma Alpern then go on to debate whether cheesecake is a tart or a pie. Ooh. Ooh, I would say a pie, but I also would have said cake. Love, so yeah. in your defense, cheesecake I would have gotten that wrong as well. I love cheesecake too, but technically it's not a cake. Yeah. It's a tart or a pie. And they go on. You, yeah. So that's on our website in five seconds. Um, I have a chance a to very, take a lead here. It was a cute little thing. All right. So it is one to one cake. Benjamin, according to wedding cake master and past Love Bites radio guest Ron Ben Israel, requesting a cake iced in gray fondant in 2017 is considered altogether drab, depressing, and hopelessly passe. True or false? I'm going to say true. False. Oh, that was my chance. Ah. That just sounds like such a like the descriptive Recent. words there just sounded well, like a Ron I am, I am I am a I am a writer. Recently in wedding market news, Ron called gray fondant a very sophisticated choice, along with incorporating rose gold in the edible decorations of the cake. Two trends coming into play. He's enjoying this season. Hmm, all right, oh. one oh, to no. one. Oh, Pressure's on. Jen cocktails. Oversized ice cubes with flowers in them are hot right now in cocktails. Oh, sounds like a trick, so I'm going to say false. It's true. Ah! <laughs> According to the knot, they keep your drink cool without diluting them too quickly and look beautiful, which from the photo, I agree with them, but damn, that is a lot of work for oh, cocktails. Yeah. That's too much. All right, Benjamin. 
cocktails. Okay, for the win. This trend took a while to catch on, but it's happening. Culling flavor from the liquid fat of butter and bacon, they're using it in wedding cocktails. True or false? I'm going to say true. You are correct. Yes! According to EasyWeddings.com and my friend Brent, who made bacon-washed liquor for a cocktail party a few weekends ago, trends infusing flavor from fat also involve nuts such as almonds, sesame, coconut, and cocoa. Jen, we, I don't I'm typically sorry, like Jen. to make our guests feel like losers. I want a rematch. <laughs> I demand a rematch. <laughs> Listeners, you can find all that of that information rough. in one minute on lovebitesradio.com. Uh, so we are about to take a commercial break, but a quick plug for yours truly. On Thursday, March 23rd, I'm going to be giving a little talk slash presentation thing for designers and geeks. They are a community of, for people interested in design, art, and tech, and they host monthly events all over the country featuring great speakers on interesting topics. Those are their quotes, not mine, I promise. <laughs> so my talk is called Managing Online Personality Disorder, and we'll cover how I run a weird career as a food writer, a health essayist, a radio producer and host, and a Marching With Me campaigner from my home with a chronic illness and a lot of help from too many kinds of technology. If you want to join us, Ben will be there with me, and we'd love to see you. Tickets are at designersandgeeks.com. They're $20, but use code WORDSFOODART for $5 off. I'm going to tweet this during the commercial break, and you can find more at designersandgeeks.com. But for now, sit back and hear a few words from our sponsor. We will be right back. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs, including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. We are back, and Jen, I just want to dive right back into asking some questions about your process, um, especially on your latest book. Sure. There's a post on your site called, I am really nervous about my book coming out. Yes. Uh, that you posted a week before the book went on sale. Can you just recap for our listeners what your greatest fear was when you shared the post? I think I was most terrified of people reading my secrets. You know, I, when I wrote this book, I, I truly wrote it for myself to get things out of my head, to confess about things that have happened to me over the past couple of years that weren't so glamorous. 
Uh, and I didn't take the time to sit there and think, wow, other people are going to read this. So about a week before it came out, it all hit me. Uh, nothing will ever be the same. There will be people out there who will think they know me. There will be people out there who read this and think something of me. Uh, I started to get all of this, you know, paranoia about what everybody else was going to think of me and my stories and my writing about a week before it came out, which I know is normal as a writer. But I think this hit me pretty hard because this was the most honest piece of work I've ever written. Was there any doubt um, when you because it's so honest and so personal and revealing that people would care about your own story and like want to know about your life and stuff like that? Sure. I also had the fear that no one would buy this book and that the publisher would be printing thousands of copies and it would just stick in a bookstore forever. And then they'd eventually stick it in the recycling bin or, you know, give it away for free. You know, I was definitely scared about that, but I think I was more nervous about the people who were going to read it. I think it's very hard when you're writing nonfiction uh, that people start to think they know you just from the body of the work that they read. So I was kind of nervous I'd have all these strangers in the world comment places and leave reviews and think that they knew they knew me from just this body of work. And I was scared that they also were going to also know me very well by this body of work because it was an honest look at my life over the past couple of years. How do you balance that because I mean did you anticipate that in the writing of it because you blog as well and so I love how your blog there are these short little snippets into these concerns you know since the since you did send the manuscript and that huge period of time between when a book is done and the book comes out um how do you anticipate that when you write I didn't as much. You know, when I post my blog posts, I still think no one's reading them. And of course, you know, after blogging for six years, more than one person is reading it. But I never write for other people. And I never anticipate that people are going to read that and be judgmental and all of that. But I think when you put out a giant body of work like a book that's 320 pages, I think you do get a little bit more paranoid because it's real and it's going to be out there. And, you know, I wrote the book in just two months. And then I had about a year where I was waiting for it to come out. So during that year, I forgot about this. I forgot that people were ever going to read it. And it just became so real about a week before. And now that it's out, how do you feel about people? Because now you're, you're touring the book already. How do you feel when people come up to you and they do feel like they know you? Have you had any surprises? I have a lot of people who read the book and who say to me, I feel like you're writing the thoughts from my head or I feel like this is my story too. And I love that because it's so great to know what, you, what you've lived through and what you're writing about. Other people are living through it as well. I think as human beings and as creative people, we sometimes think that we're the only ones going through things and we think our situation is so unique. But a lot of the details of our lives are parallel to other people's lives. And that's a good feeling to hear from people that they feel like they're living in this story as well. Uh, but then I do have people who email me, you know, not so nice things because they read the book. They think they know me and they're judging my dating life or my mistakes or things in the book that, you know, happened many years ago and are not really who I am anymore. I have people judging that aspect and telling me how I should live my life and what I should be doing differently. And, you know, those are the comments where I just want them to know, like, we're all human beings trying to function. And uh, this is who I am and what I've lived through. And, um, you know, those comments are sometimes harder to digest. Um, I'm curious, because our experiences are so universal. And the more kind of specific we are, it seems like the more people do feel like 
we are speaking for them, even though it's our own story. Were there any times in your process where you felt like you had to embellish it all to make it more interesting or to make it funnier, to make it more relatable? And if so, like, how did you balance, you know, wanting to be an interesting storyteller and also sticking to like the truth? for you personally? Yeah, so, you know, being a nonfiction writer, you have to stick to the truth. You have less of a choice, which is a good thing because it really makes you just be very raw and honest and not try to shape yourself as looking like a perfect human being. Uh, And a lot of what I've been writing on the internet and forever is just exactly who I am. And I, I do look pretty messy because I am writing myself as, you know, being completely real and in that moment. So I never felt like I had to embellish anything or exaggerate anything. I think that I just pulled stories for this book that were, you know, sticking in my heart for a very long time and bringing me pain and discomfort and confusion. So I chose the stories that were the boldest ones, the ones that I thought uh, I wanted to reveal to people. And oftentimes those are the ones that have enough juice in them that you don't really need to mess them up anymore. And what do you do about those people who do bring conflict when they email you, even if they mean it, even if they mean well? Because I think one of the problems that I have every time I write an essay about something regarding health is that people see a snippet into my life. And then I get emails from people being like, I I am you. You are me. Try this thing because it worked for me and it saved me. And then I find myself drafting huge missives to them about like, I did that 15 years ago and that didn't work for me. My illness is different than yours. And it's like this whole process that then I don't do it because, you know, it's like this whole thing of people think that they know you because of something you've shared, which we get on the radio show too. people hear glimpses of your life. And then it's I'm still figuring out. You know, a friend was like, oh, you respond to everybody. I'm like, well, my, my pool is small enough that I can. But how so how do you what's your protocol for when people want to give you advice or help even even meaning, you know, well, but they don't know you? I still have that rule where I try to respond to every single person that emails me. And of course, some I go more into depth and some I just say thank you. The emails that make me, I think, the most upset is when people will be like, oh, you live this glamorous life. We saw your Instagram and you're traveling all the time and you're a bridesmaid for hire. You work weddings. How great. Those are the emails that pain me the most because it makes me feel like I haven't done a good enough job of, you know, bringing everyone back down to reality and showing them that my life is anything but glamorous. It's filled with a lot of uh, you know, bad, bad moments in a Detroit bathroom melting right. down. Moments in a bathroom and just right. bad situations. And those are the emails where I want to go off on a rant. And I want to go off on like a 10-page rant as to how my life is so hard and you don't know me. But in those situations, I take a step back and say, they only know what you've put out there. So uh, in those situations, I try to just be kind back and realize we're all humans fighting the same battle. They don't mean any harm. Just reply with something kind and loving and call it a night. So knowing that you were going to face this, you know, potential criticism and, you know, people feeling like they knew you and all these sorts of like backlash from, you know, the publication of your book. How did you get to a point in your process of writing it to be like, oh, this book is ready for that? I didn't have a choice. I had two months to write the entire book. And during that time, I shut off my internet. I turned off my cell phone and I would write from 6 a.m. to 9 p.m. to get it done in 60 days. I cut out every distraction from my life, including seeing friends and, uh, you know, lost a couple of relationships along the way during those two months. But I didn't think about a single person reading it. I didn't think about a single editor editing it. I just had to think about December 15th, 2015, when I had to send that book in. And that was what I had to do. Wow. It was a blessing in disguise because I didn't have much time to worry about anything else. Was there anything cathartic 
about that because you have a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of messy stories in it because it's just sort of this honest account of your life. So was it this like, especially since you were blocking everything out, was it this big purge of this was my life the last couple of years and you're just sort of letting it all out there? It was. Like, this is before I had ever been to a therapist. I since have one now, but it was almost <laughs> like my free way of getting therapy was just to admit these things out loud to myself onto paper uh, and really pull from why these things made me feel this way, pulling from my past experiences like a good therapist does. And in a way, it was this one-on-one situation. You know, when you're a writer, an artist, anyone creative, and you spend that much time by yourself, you really get to know yourself. And it's almost a good thing because rarely do we have that time. Most of the time we have our phones, we have our friends. So it is a very, you know, interesting experience that I recommend people go through is 60 days of just being by yourself doing something creative. Was there a story or something that was harder to to come to closure with as you wrote it? Like some like an experience that it took a while to self therapize therapy therapy yeah. <laughs> I made that up. yes I'm gonna stick with it self th- self therapize there was I love that term you know huh. there was I, I never thought that in this book I would write about my childhood you know this is a book about starting a job based on being a bridesmaid for hire and here I was writing stories about my childhood and being bullied and how that made me you know then launch this business so everything kind of tied together and I was talking about things I never thought I would be writing about for this memoir the outline that I gave my editor on day one and how the book looks now are night and day. All art is subjective. And, um, you know, this book in particular, again, being so personal, is do you view it and as a success for yourself? And, like, how do you kind of define whether or not this book is a success and where does it fall on that metric for you? It's really interesting. I always had this dream of walking into Barnes & Noble and seeing my book there and thinking that that was going to be the best day of my life. And the day it came out, I went to Barnes & Noble, I saw my book there, and I felt absolutely nothing. I didn't feel proud. I didn't feel excited. I didn't feel sad. I felt kind of numb. And I thought about, why am I feeling like this? Why am I not crying? Why am I not so excited? And then I remembered that this isn't the proudest moment of my life. This is just somebody printing the book and putting it on a shelf. The proudest moment of my life was those two months doing something I never thought I could do. I never thought I could write 320 pages. Uh, I never thought I could form 25 different short stories into a book in such a short time. And I look back and perhaps the dark days of writing and really, you know, killing yourself doing that, those were my proudest moments. And I think that was the success to me was being able to finish it and then finishing it and being proud of it then. See, Benjamin, the ending was the happy part. It's true. It's true. (laughs) How about, like, do you have any regrets or things that you wish were different about the book or things, ways that you wish it were different or things that, you know, didn't go how you wanted them to? I really wanted to write a final chapter. Uh, I didn't have time and I said to my editor, okay, I'll write it while you're editing this, you know, the first 25 chapters. Uh, and I never did. And, and I'm, I don't regret that. I don't think it needed that. But I wonder what that chapter would be. And I wonder what I would have said. Um, but I don't. I'm, I'm, I've never been proud of anything I've ever done in my life or anything I've ever written. And this is truly the first book that I read and I still cry when I read because I am very proud of it. And it's very emotional for me. Um, which is so weird, but um, yeah, it's definitely been the most proud thing I've ever done. Do you have a thought or even a sentence you might want to share that is the final chapter or that 
you know, you could share with us now? Yeah, the final chapter was going to be called the name of the book, which is always a bridesmaid for hire. And I was going to talk about how um, so many people always hear that when I'm a bridesmaid for hire and they're like, oh, you're always the bridesmaid, never the bride. And how, A, that's so completely rude to say to a person. Uh, and B, big deal if I'm always the bridesmaid, never a bride. Why should you rush down the aisle? Uh, so it's going to kind of be a, a rant of sorts as to why people need to stop saying that stupid phrase, which was invented by Listerine as a way of promoting mouthwash in the 1920s. That is the truth. And that's we still use that phrase from there. So um, I guess it's going to be a final rant about that phrase. I feel like that. I feel like you need to write this chapter yeah. and like write it for. I feel like that could be a book in itself, right? right. But I feel like, I feel like you can write that chapter as an essay so. for something. Yeah. yeah, maybe in the future. Yeah, I feel like that should happen. All right, before before we let you go, uh, finally, so it takes a lot of guts, like you were saying, to write a book. Like, and especially in two months, I cannot imagine. Oh my God, I cannot imagine that. I cannot imagine that. So, um, so maybe as a little bit of a takeaway advice for listeners, what is one coping mechanism? that you feel like in this process of creating something and getting to that deadline? What is one coping mechanism that really specifically worked well for you? I think that, um, you know, I was able to hit that deadline and just cope with the whole situation um, by thinking to myself that this is just one opportunity and not the last opportunity. I think mm -hmm. when you're a creative person and you get a great deal, a great situation, you think, oh God, I can't blow it. What if I never get anything else? And my 86-year-old best friend Ray keeps telling me, <laughs> big deal. Maybe you'll never get another book deal, but maybe you won't ever want to write another book. Maybe you'll want to write something else or do something yeah. else. So stop thinking about the future and enjoy the opportunity you have. Fail at it, do a great job at it, but live in the moment. I love the Ray chapter in the book, oh, by the you. way, the whole like, come back when you failed 86 times or whatever. I was like, I need that guy. He's I feel like we cookie. all, I think everybody needs a little Ray in their life. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else, Benjamin? I loved your interview. Yeah. I think Thank you're, you. you're like a fantastic guest. Thank you, Thank and you I so appreciate much. all of your insight into your process. It's really fascinating and motivating, right? Yeah. Thank so you motivated. for having me. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on, Jen. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, listeners, you can find more about Jen at www.thegenglance.com and at bridesmaidforhire.com. Bridesmaid... Bridesmaid for Hire. Okay, I was just checking. I looked at that. I was like, wait a second. Yeah, bridesmaidforhire.com. And she's at Jen Glance, as sorry, at Jen Glance on Twitter and Instagram. Um, that is our show for today. You can find all of our shows archived at heritageradionetwork.org. While you are there, we would love for you to click on the beating heart and show our nonprofit digital radio team some member love. Uh, some fantastic benefits await you if you join up with us. You can also subscribe to our feeds on iTunes, where we would love for you to rate and review us. This is a huge part in helping us get the word out, and every one of your reviews really warms our hearts. Ben and I read them over and over and over and over again. Next week, we will and be... over and over <laughs> and over again. Uh, next week, we will be talking breakups, like hard stick-to-your-ribs oh, breakups. Why do we do this ourselves? Benjamin. Next week, because I gave us a happy ending today. And next week, we'll go back to our tortured... We're both wearing all black. I feel like it's... We should have done that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next week... It's dark. It gets dark. So, uh, and a reminder to those in the chronic illness community, we are still taking your stories on breakups because of illness. So connect with me via any of our platforms. We are at Love Bites Radio if you want to get in on that show. Until then, thanks as always to our engineer, Vitor. Our theme song is Give Love by Josh Dion. We are Jacqueline Raposo and Ben Rosenblatt. Love Bites will be back at the same time next week right here at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. See ya. I'll save the world. I'll do my save the world.
for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.